0: sign up. The other day, I went to the batting cages with my 16, almost 17-year-old son. Uh, his club baseball team has batting cages actually at like 40th Street and Thunderbird. It's called The Hive. Maybe you've seen it if you go over there. And, um, you know, he's six feet tall now. He's almost as strong as me. And that was a joke. You can laugh. Yeah, he's almost as strong as me. But he's been playing baseball since he was five years old. And he's been playing competitively since he was about nine years old. And so needless to say, he has this whole baseball thing figured out. So it should be noted also that up until he was 12 years old, and I think I've mentioned this before, I helped coach his teams. I also helped coach his brother's team and his sister's softball teams. But once he got into his teen years, I decided to retire and just yell at the umps from the seats. So that was was my, was my new deal. And since then, I haven't really drone-him-batting practice. I used to do it all the time, but it's been four or five years since I've done that. And so when he asked me, I thought, well, I, okay, I can go and help you out. They were off for fall break, so we went. And we started on the tee, and I just placed balls on the tee, and he you know, worked on his mechanics, his technique. And then we moved to what's called front toss, which is I sit behind an L screen, you know, this protective screen, and I just sit on a bucket, and I underhand throw to him, you know, from about 10 to 15 feet Away and then after you know a number of baseballs hit, we moved the screen back about thirty feet and I warmed up my arm to throw him batting practice. Now again, I hadn't done this in many years, and so I said, Hey, just bunt a few, let me just see if I can throw a strike. I have no idea. And I was surprised, I still got it, still got it. So I was throwing strikes, and then I just finally I was like, All right, I feel good, my arm feels good, go ahead, swing away. Big mistake. Very big mistake. The first pitch I threw down the middle, he hit the ball straight back at me faster than I had ever seen a ball hit before. And yes, I had this screen in front of me, but I almost fell over from the flinch that it gave me. I was terrified. Of course, he was laughing, right? But I was terrified. Now, when he was younger, I wouldn't have even looked, you know, I wouldn't even have flinched. But now he's six foot one, he's 160 pounds of mostly muscle. That ball was on a collision course with this feeble 43-year-old body, and I didn't want anything to do with it. Now, by the way, I should note, we went actually again a couple days later, and at the end of our session, I said, hey, how about you throw me batting practice? And uh, I was a little scared that I would throw out a hip, but I hung in there, And uh, to his surprise, Dad still got it. Yeah, in fact, he was a little scared of what was happening. So here's the thing. I got to thinking about this after, as I was preparing this message, because here's the thing, with modern technology today, Major League Baseball, and if you've been watching Baseball at R, or you've seen the playoffs, you, you notice that they now measure the speed of the ball being hit off the baseball's, or the player's bat, and uh, this past season, a player on the Pittsburgh Pirates called O'Neill Cruz hit a ball off his bat at 122.4 miles per hour. Yeah. Can you imagine being 60 feet away as a pitcher? Like, that's terrifying. I don't know how they do it without a screen in front of them. And just to give you an idea, the average velocity of off the bat throughout, you know, the major league season is 87 miles per hour. He hit the ball almost 40 miles per hour faster than the average. Physics tells us this, that the faster an object is heading toward another object, the greater the force of the collision. And should both objects, like a bat and a ball, be accelerating at the same time towards each other, a massive collision will occur. And when this happens, the smaller of the two objects will catapult in the opposite direction it was headed at a greater speed than it was originally traveling. Thus, a ball traveling at 90 miles an hour gets hit by a bat, a massive collision occurs, and the ball is now traveling at 122 miles per hour in the opposite direction. Now, I know you didn't come here to get a crash course on <laughs> physics, okay? I know that's not what we're here. So the question is, what does this have to do with anything? Well, in the world of physics, this is an application of Newton's third law. And you may know this, Newton's third law says for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. When the ball comes into contact with the bat, an opposite and equal reaction occurs, catapulting the bat in the opposite direction in which it came. And this is a physical law that is true in our physical world. But as I read the scriptures, especially the scripture we're going to read today, I realize that that law doesn't just apply to our physical world, but it applies to our spiritual world as well. So with that in mind, if you haven't done so yet, you can grab your phone and open up the YouVersion app, and uh, you can go to more, and then events, and you'll find Genesis Church under there as a live event. You can follow along with everything we're going to read. Or if you have your Bible with you, we are going to be starting in Acts chapter 9, Verse one. Now, before we get there, though, I just want to go back to the very beginning of Acts chapter 8. Because it's there that we are first introduced to the man, uh, the main character of the passage today. At the end of chapter 7, one of the early leaders of the church, a man named Stephen, is stoned to death for some of the things that he's saying before the high council, the ruling authorities over the Jewish Tradition and law in Jerusalem in the first century. He's saying things about about the temple that they don't agree with. He's saying things about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They just don't agree with it. And so at the end, they finally have had enough, and they say, just drag him into the streets and stone him, which they do. They stone him to death. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Luke, the author of Acts, points out a very specific person who happens to be there on this occasion. Acts 8.1 says Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now, following the stoning of Stephen, a wave of persecution begins to take place and spreads throughout Jerusalem against the church. And it forces many of the first followers to scatter into the surrounding areas, namely the area around Jerusalem, Judea, and all the way into Samaria. And we've, we've looked at some of what's happened as a result of that. And as a result, the, the, this wave of persecution begins to go outside of Jerusalem as well. It begins to go into the neighboring cities looking for these first followers, which is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Says this. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any of the followers of the way he found there. By the way, that was one way they referred to first Christians. There wasn't a name for them yet. They were not named Christians, and so many people referred to them as people of the way. Remember what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Going on, he he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. All right, so this is a man on a mission. You can almost see the foam seething from his mouth as he chases down these first Christians around the surrounding areas in Judea. He's zealous to imprison and kill them so zealous that he starts writing letters to other synagogues around the area to join him in his efforts. He wants to write letters to say, hey, listen, you guys up there in Damascus, there are people coming there that are part of this new movement, and uh, you need to get on the bandwagon. We're trying to kill them all. He wants to go and write letters to as many synagogues in the area as he possibly can. Now, it is important to note that Saul is a member of a sect of Judaism called the Pharisees. And Pharisees were considered the most devout and zealous Jews within first century Judaism. Nobody was committed to following the Old Testament and ensuring the purity of the Jewish religion like the Pharisees. And likewise, nobody was as zealous in making sure those who were a threat to the Jewish faith like the Pharisees. There was this zeal, this angst, this passion to make sure that the Jewish faith was protected at all costs. And anybody who was a threat to that needed to be discarded. One way or another they needed to be rid of from the community. And among the Pharisees, Saul was at the top of the pile. So It should come as no surprise that Saul is going after these followers of Jesus. They were the greatest threat to Judaism at the time. They were saying all these crazy things about Jesus and he's the Messiah, and they were telling people to follow him exclusively and that they no—they no longer had to go to the Holy of Holies to pray to God. They could pray to God wherever they wanted to. They were saying things like he's the sacrificial lamb that Isaiah talked about. They were saying things like the temple is just a building, but now the temple lives in us. They were saying things about the Torah, that he's the ultimate Moses, that Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees are ticked off. It, this is... This is not okay for them. And so the followers of the way become the great threat to Judaism. And so Saul goes on a mission to seek them out and throw them in jail and even kill some of them. But things are about to get shaken up for Saul as he heads out on his crusade to eradicate Jesus' followers from the earth. Verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard, voice, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the sea, and you'll be told what you must do. So before we get to the meat of, of kind of what's going on here, I want to actually point us back to a passage that was written 600 years prior because it has an intimate connection with what's happening in Saul's life in this moment. Ezekiel was a prophet to God's people during the first Babylonian exile in and around 593 BC. Now, like Isaiah and Jeremiah before him, Ezekiel spoke boldly To the Jewish people because they had broken their commitment to God. In addition, Ezekiel had various visions that God gave him that sort of opened up the spiritual realm in which we all reside. And of all the visions that he had, there were none as near and dear to the Jewish people as the one found in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Now, it should also be noted that during the time of the Pharisees in the first century, this passage in Ezekiel was often used as a starting point for prayer and meditation. Much like the Shema, which happens in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, da-da-da-da-da-da. This passage was used as a focal point for prayer and meditation among Jews, especially the Pharisees. Now, not only, as a result, would this passage in Ezekiel 1 be familiar to Saul, but it's very likely that it would have been a focus of his as he travels from Jerusalem to Damascus in search of these first followers of Jesus. It's a distance of about 135 miles, and depending on if he went by carriage or if he walked, it would take him anywhere from three, four, five days to almost a month depending on how he traveled. And so being as devout as Saul was to his pharisaical commitment which we know of in the New Testament writings that he puts out later he would most undoubtedly use this time of travel to read and to pray and to meditate on the scriptures. It's what a good pharisee did and Paul, Saul, later named Paul, would reflect on that naming, saying, listen, you know the Pharisees? Listen, I was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. So as he's traveling to Damascus, it is highly likely that he is focusing on the, the core scriptures that Pharisees would use as prayer and meditation, including Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, there are many serious scholars, including one of my favorites, N.T. Wright, who very well suspect that it could have been Saul's focus this scripture was on while he was traveling to Damascus. And they think that because of its close comparison to Jesus' encounter with Saul. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6 again, and then I'm going to read Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28 right after. And as I read the two, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Paul I want you to think like Paul was thinking as he rides his way to Damascus, meditating on the words of Ezekiel chapter 1. So here's Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6 again. Luke writes, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now here's Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And on this throne of high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. From what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame shining with Splendor. All around him was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground and I heard someone's voice speaking to me. Do you notice how Ezekiel defines, describes Jesus? and glow, a halo glowing around him. Did you notice how Luke describes Jesus' encounter with Saul, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him? In both cases, Ezekiel falls to the ground and he hears a voice. In Saul's experience, he falls to the ground and he hears a voice. Now, listen, I suppose for those of us myself included, who aren't all that familiar with the book of Ezekiel, we we might just chalk this up as a really interesting coincidence. Like, yeah, you could probably find that anywhere, right? The vision of Ezekiel is no longer an unreachable description of God, though, for Saul. For Saul, this wasn't just a coincidence. This was the Scriptures come to life before his very eyes. The vision of Ezekiel was now colliding with his world right before him. The light, the man, the voice, his falling to the ground. Saul wasn't just reading and meditating on the words of Ezekiel chapter 1. It was violently colliding with his reality in a way he never could have imagined before. And as a result, nothing would ever be the same for Saul again. Let's continue in Acts chapter 9 verse 7. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for 3 days and did not eat or drink. This passage is often referred to as Saul's conversion. This isn't the story of a conversion as much as it is a story of a collision. To be clear, Saul won't turn away from everything he knows. He's not going to give up completely on his roots in Judaism. They will remain fully intact in the same way that it has for the apostles in the first church before him. But because of this collision with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Everything he knows about the Old Testament and Judaism and his life has changed. Everything he knows is now wrapped up in this person who is standing before him, telling him, why are you persecuting me? Everything that he knows of all of his studies growing up, of his pharisaical commitment, is now colliding with the reality of Jesus who fulfilled all of it. Nothing would be the same for Saul. I mean, Saul didn't realize it when he set out for Damascus, but he was on a collision course with Jesus. He had no idea, but Jesus did. And like a baseball heading towards home plate, Saul's collision with Jesus would catapult him in an entirely different direction than he ever expected. This is a massive collision in Saul's life. That vision that he, he meditated on in Ezekiel chapter 1 for so many years has now collided with the reality of Jesus on the road to Damascus. I am certain, I am positive that you have walked in here on a collision course with Jesus this morning. Like he did with Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus is here, and he wants to collide with your world in a way that sends you in a whole new direction. Because like it did for Saul, a collision with Jesus changes everything. Saul, who would later be named Paul, would go on to be the greatest advocate and leader of the church the world has ever seen. It would be through him that the good news of Jesus would collide with the farthest portions of the Roman Empire in the first century. And it would be through him that Jesus would collide with the people of Philippi, Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, and beyond, changing everything for those who encountered him. You see, Newton's third law isn't just something that happens in the physical world. It doesn't just happen when I'm standing in a batting cage with my 16-year-old son, it happens in the spiritual world as well. When our lives collide with the reality of Jesus, it sends us in a whole new direction, often faster than we ever approached him in the first place. Jesus is on a collision course with you. No matter who you are or what you've done or what you have become, Jesus is moving towards You, ready to collide with your reality. Of all the people who Jesus should have collided with that day, Saul had to have been the last one on the list, according to us. Right? I mean, he was likely there when they hung Jesus on the cross, applauding what was happening. He he agreed to the killing and the imprisonment of thousands of Jesus' first followers. And he was on his way to further his mission to eliminate the church in Damascus. And yet out of his great unearned love, Jesus decides, I am colliding with your world today, Saul. And it changed everything. I know the shame of your past. It seems too big. I know you maybe feel like you've hurt one too many people. I know you've hidden the addiction for way too long. I know you've walked away from faith and from God. I know you've thought thoughts and you've done things you would never speak of. I know you've doubted far more than you'd like to admit. I know you're hurting, you're lonely, you're struggling. I know that you feel like nobody sees you or hears you. I know. So does Jesus. But none of that will ever stop him from trying to collide with your world. He loves you more than you will ever know. He forgives you no matter what you've done. If he would collide with a guy like Saul and forgive him and send him in a brand new direction, well, certainly he would collide with us as well he comes with hope and new life he wants to change you sending you in a brand new direction that brings peace and generosity and patience and faith and by the way jesus always collides with us in a personal way you know why because he knows you for saul he collided with him a way that could only get saul's attention and he'll do the same for us so this morning I just want to invite you to let yourself stand in the collision course of Jesus to allow him to collide with you in a way that will send you in an entirely new direction closer to your creator closer who you were created to be closer to love and patience and purity and generosity And kindness, allow him to bust into your world and change everything.